0: Hey there, it's Sarah McCammon here in Reno, Nevada, big-time battleground state this year. So, before we start the show, want to let you know that a great way to listen to the podcast is the NPR One app. It's got all your favorite podcasts as well as a constantly updated stream of NPR stories. That means all the reporting we're always talking about here on the show, you can hear it on NPR One. Get NPR One, O-N-E, on your app store now. I'm telling you, it is indispensable. They didn't make me say that. It's one of my favorite apps,
1: truly. Okay, here's the show.
2: It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our weekly roundup of political news. We are between debates, VP debate on Tuesday, second presidential debate on Sunday. We'll talk about that, the latest battleground state picture, plus some listener mail, and what we just can't let go of this week. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign.
3: I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter.
2: I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. And I'm Domenico
4: Montanaro, political editor.
2: And it is October 6th, barely a month, 32 days. Wait, what is it? No. 33 or 32. It is is third. Well, it's Domenico, like you have the countdown clock, and I think your countdown clock says we are like... 33 days and a few hours away from... To
4: poll closing times. So I had it set to the <laughs> 7 o'clock poll closing time in Virginia and Indiana. So we're, you know that's when it's really kicking off.
2: Do you have a countdown clock to the next debate? Uh, No. Okay. That's I'm just not, a
4: few days. I'm not CNN. But
2: here it comes. <laughs> no. you're not, you're what? Not, what? I'm not CNN. No. It's not just CNN. Well, they it? have a
3: countdown clock on countdown clocks just for every day,
4: right? Yeah, countdown clock to tomorrow. <laughs>
2: So we have another debate coming up on Sunday, and it is a different kind of debate. No lecterns, a town hall style format. Half the questions will come from people in the audience. Um, It'll be moderated by Martha Raddatz, a global affairs reporter for ABC News and Anderson Cooper of CNN. What are we looking for with this one, guys?
4: I think it's really important after that first debate for Donald Trump, which was pretty disastrous, Uh, he really wasn't able to go 90 minutes toe to toe with Hillary Clinton. He needs to be able to show that he has some policy chops, be able to have a kind of temperament where he's maybe not interrupting, as he learned from Tim Kaine, and perhaps the mistake that Tim Kaine was too overeager in that first vice presidential debate or the only vice presidential debate, and that Donald Trump needs to show some facility with the issues and be able to convince people that he has a kind of presidential temperament because it didn't work the the first debate. And awesome. yeah,
0: Domenico, I was going to say I think temperament is even maybe more important in this debate because it's a town hall format. And so we'll have some people in the audience asking questions. And so depending on how Donald Trump's body language is with some of those voters or how he responds to them. And remember, these are supposed to be undecided voters who will be in this town hall format. So I think temperament will be very, very key on Sunday's debate.
3: My question is, how many people will check in for debate two or how many people saw debate one and made up their mind? I don't know.
4: Well, I, I think there's been a lot of people watching 14, 15, 16 months of this <laughs> and have made up their mind yes. quite long ago. So I don't I don't think that there's like a lot of people who are going to be tuning in thinking, well, maybe I can have my mind changed, but there is a narrow slice as we continue to, you know, kind of shrink through that funnel to try to get to election day and figure out who's left and who needs to be convinced. There are apparently some people who are are swayable and persuadable because Hillary Clinton's lead has expanded unquestionably since the first debate.
2: debate. I I was thinking about like the format with this Uh, town halls. I I think in some ways it could be a good format for Donald Trump. I think part of the challenge with the first debate for him was that they had extended periods of time. They got two minutes to respond and then they had these extended periods of a back and forth. And that might have been too expansive
3: too much Enough. time to too I much wonder time to wonder how much fill.
0: experience Donald Trump actually has on the campaign trail doing town halls. I mean, I remember ages ago in New Hampshire, he took questions because he thought, you know, I'm I'm in New Hampshire. People tell me I should do a town hall. So I did. But Hillary Clinton actually has habitual experience and practice with this format. Oh, my God. How many town halls That's have true. I been to in the just holds in in very last large year. rallies, right? I wonder just how accustomed he is to this format.
3: But aren't the thing about Clinton town halls that she holds herself is that the crowd is all folks that support her already?
2: Generally speaking, that is the case. She also uh, took a whole bunch of questions from small children. But odds of her getting an adorable little girl who wants to know if she'll make as much money as the boy president? um, Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) Uh, The Odds are the questions are going to be tougher. Yes. And part of the thing with a town hall is you want to... The candidate needs to connect with that person who they're answering. Like, if, if if there's a human being right there, right in front of you, who's asked you a question about something that matters in their lives, the imperative is on the candidate to, to connect to with that person, to emote and to actually answer their question. It, it's harder to, like, ignore a regular voter than mm-hmm. it is to ignore a moderator. Yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah, you can't yeah. you can't say and use the crutch of like that's a dumb question or you know that's a biased question when somebody's asking you a question. You know that 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 doesn't seem correct like the right thing to do that's why Hillary Clinton got in trouble for her basket of deplorables remark because she was criticizing voters as opposed to criticizing Donald Trump uh, where she said plenty of nasty things about him and he's said plenty about her but when you start criticizing voters that's a different situation and guys i want to just say i really like this format a lot because you know, stylistically, it's much more difficult to make this a split screen debate. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to see them have to walk around. Do they seem comfortable in their own skin? How do they answer people's questions? So a lot of this is stylistic, but it will be things that people are able to see and not just the I mean, do screen. you
0: feel like some presidential candidate in years past has really bombed at this or done really yes. well? And has that mattered?
4: Uh, Al Gore messed it up. I mean, he you know, wandered out from his stool and moved into George W. Bush's space. Mm. And uh, that became a big issue because George W. Bush handled it kind of like, oh, hey, what, what why are you there? Like, what you doing, <laughs> buddy? And like Gore just seemed kind of out of place and there wasn't real, a real reason for it. So you can see this kind of thing when the you know the walls come down, so to speak. They get out from
3: behind those lecterns. Where do they go? Sam? I'm hoping that because these two candidates will be in front of a live audience, that they will be less likely to bicker on the stage. Mm-hmm. Highly doubtful. Yeah, no. Highly d- <laughs> That's not going to happen. Sorry. I There's keep still going to be though. a lot of crosstalk. No. Crosstalk, but less, I mean, like, because there were some moments in the first debate where they, they it, it was just kind of... Character assassination going
4: it's on. It's gonna be that. I mean, you're gonna Do see. You I mean, think it will be to the I, same. I, I think it'll be less. Yeah. I wonder if it'll be less. There's gonna too. be people there watching undecided live. undecided voters. Yeah, it's but, not like playing I mean, when to you a
0: football audience, right? Where you've got. It's not a, gonna be a friendly crowd necessarily, right? That's true.
4: I mean, but when you watched Obama and Romney. That happened. I mean, Mm -hmm. when Mitt Romney would say things that Barack Obama said were not factual or vice versa, the other one would try to jump in or try to get the moderator's attention to jump in. And then there was a little bit of back and forth, usually on some kind of policy issue. But we'll see where that goes. There's definitely gonna be some contentiousness in that way.
2: Speaking of policy, um, what... What do you think is going to come up? Like there were a lot of things that were left out of the first debate. Some of those things came up in the vice presidential debate. But obviously, like this is the first time that we are going to have these two together since the last debate. And and there have been issues. Well,
4: what's great about this is that voters are the wild card. I mean, people get to ask questions. I mean, I'm sure that there's some screening that goes on, some dealing with Anderson Cooper and Martha Raddatz to be able to move things in a direction that they want to go. They may take a look at what Lester Holt asked in that first debate and say, we need to move in a slightly different direction or fill in with some things that didn't get talked about, like healthcare, for example, very much, at least, or immigration. So- We'll see. I would expect those two things to be a couple issues that do come up.
0: And the other issue that has happened in the interim since that first debate uh, are Trump's tax returns or, or the lack of tax returns, which continue to be an issue. But we had The New York Times publish this big story that showed Donald Trump had uh, about a one billion dollar loss in the mid 1990s that could suggest possibly that he did not pay uh, any federal income tax for a number of years. So I would expect that in some way that should come up uh, in Sunday's debate.
2: And the other thing that has happened in the interim is that the New York State Attorney General ordered Donald Trump's foundation to stop soliciting donations while the AG looks Mm -hmm. into the foundation's operations and the way it was set up, because it apparently wasn't initially designed to be the type of organization that people would donate to. It was initially designed to be a rich family puts their money in there and, and doles it out.
3: I keep wondering if Benghazi is going to come up in these debates. Mm-hmm. Like, is that is. over as an issue?
2: Well, I will say that at some of the town halls that Clinton has done, certainly not all of them, but her emails came up at at least one town hall. Trustworthiness has come up at, at a number of town halls. Benghazi has come up at, at a town hall. So people do ask about those things yeah. like real people do. Reporters ask more, but real people do. So it's possible those things would come up. Um, and as a reminder, we will have our usual episode in your feed first thing Monday morning with recap and analysis of that debate, which is airing Sunday night. The debate is Sunday night, Monday morning. If you happen to miss the debate or even if you don't, we'll be in your feed. Um, so there were a bunch of new polls out this week, polls taken after that first debate. And they show Clinton with leads now in crucial battleground states. Domenico, can you 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 just updated our uh, the NPR battleground map. Can you walk us through it?
4: Yeah. You know, and here's the thing. About three weeks ago, I had another battleground map that showed that Donald Trump's path to the nomination had finally opened up. You could actually see one. But again, now the Clinton tide is sort of risen again, where across a bunch of these swing states, you've seen a movement in her direction pretty clearly after this debate. And there's been a really like a whole host of polls that have shown this. Um, And, you know, according to our reporting, the demographics on the ground uh, and some of these polls, you've seen this movement. Uh, One of the things to point out is that Hillary Clinton right now, would have 272 electoral votes, which is more than the 270 needed to be president with just the states leaning in her direction. So in other words, none of the toss-up states, none of the states that could go either way. Right now, we only have four, four states in the toss-up category, which is a pretty small uh, number of toss-ups now. Okay, we have which are they? Florida, North Carolina, Nevada, and Arizona. All right, so those four are your toss-ups. I've moved Ohio Iowa, and two electoral votes in Maine and Nebraska in Donald Trump's direction. Even Ohio. Even Ohio. So And and look at that for a second. You've got Ohio moving in Trump's direction. He's only at 205 electoral votes. So he needs a lot more help. And even if you were to give Trump Florida, North Carolina, and Nevada, between those three, there are only 50 electoral votes. So adding that into- He's still short. Wow. He is still short. So with the, he has about 216 electoral votes when you look at just the polls right now, because uh, he's leading in Arizona. So you would give him that state if you were just throw the polls. And I'm He'd so be intrigued
0: at... to hear you mention mm-hmm. Arizona, Dominica, because right, Arizona cause at the beginning of this race was not supposed to be a toss up well, state.
4: And right now that would mean that Donald Trump would be at 266 electoral votes winning Florida, Ohio, North Carolina and Nevada. Okay. You would normally say that would be the end, but because Hillary Clinton is likely to win right now a state like Virginia, she's ahead in New Hampshire, she's ahead in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, all of those places, Donald Trump needs to pick off one of those states. You still see Hillary Clinton with not an insignificant lead in those places.
2: Asma, you were in both Pennsylvania and Ohio this week traveling with Hillary Clinton Ohio is particularly fascinating because... It has been the bellwether. It is the state. It's where the y- ultimate bellwether. It is right? allegedly the ultimate talk. bellwether.
0: So, Might be
4: the last time.
0: Yeah. So, what's up with that, Osma? So, exactly what Domenico is saying. It seems that as America has changed, Ohio has not changed as quickly. Racially? I mean, racially, specifically. But basically, the population in Ohio seems relatively stagnant. So, you know, it's an overwhelmingly white state and it has a very large white working class population. So, both on education level, Levels and uh, on sort of race and ethnic makeup, it just doesn't look like what the country looks like. And so I think what's interesting is when we talk about Ohio and Pennsylvania, right, we often thought of those states as kind of like brothers from another mother. They're really similar. <laughs> but, but I think what's interesting is it's kind of... I would say this election maybe is a really interesting pivot point where we're beginning to see Pennsylvania has had an increasing and growing Latino population. And it has always had a very large African-American population centered around some of the, the urban cores like Philadelphia. And so what you'll see in a state like Pennsylvania, even though the western part of the state could you know, be a, a very big asset for Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton could just run up the margins around Philadelphia and in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and she'll be okay. And that's partly because of the education and the race makeup there in that state.
2: And their emphasis really
0: is on those suburbs.
1: Mm -hmm. And she
0: was there. She was in Delaware County this week campaigning. She held a family town hall. And really, the target audience were women, suburban women.
4: I think it's more like at this point, because of the growth in the healthcare industry and various other industries in the eastern part of the state, eastern Pennsylvania around Philadelphia, those suburbs you talk about, look far more like a traditional northeastern state, whereas western, middle and western Pennsylvania look a whole lot more in parts like West Virginia. And Ohio and some of those more traditional Midwestern states,
0: and even more than race, I think education levels really help us understand what's going on in Ohio. My favorite graph that we've done favorite all year. Graph. Long, oh, favorite graph. I love graph. you so much. Yeah. You know, know what I'm talking about? No, it's it was the, great. It is an amazing oh, graph. And what we did is we looked at the percent of white college-educated folks in the state. We did that for all of the battleground states. And we saw, you know, would this state be red or blue? Basically, by doing that, you can see Ohio is in the bottom tier of states in terms of its percent of white college-educated voters.
4: What we're also seeing, though, just... Overall, we're seeing a political shift in the American electorate. I mean, we are seeing, uh, you know, a big change within the parties. You know, we, we've seen this demographic change. You know, by 2020, by the next presidential election, a majority of children those under 18 will be uh, non-white. By 2044, which is not that far off, no r- one racial group will be uh, the majority in the country. That's what the census is projecting. Right now already, and Asma's talked about this at other times, those who are five and under, kindergartners right now, are majority mm-hmm. minority. So the country is changing. We've seen that that the Trump campaign in many respects is appealing to whites who are not growing as quickly as those other demographic groups and who are feeling in some respects a sense of white resentment toward those other groups changing. And what we're seeing is it's changing the face of both parties. The Republican Party has become much more reliant on white working class voters with less than college degree who are a shrinking piece of the electorate, while Democrats, for the first time, they could win whites with a college degree. That has never happened before if since, it like since polling began.
0: And that's amazing to me is that this has historically been a Republican voting block. White voters who have a college degree. And so if Hillary Clinton can tie that group or win them—that is really a historical first—and I'll be really curious to see what it means for the Democratic Party going forward. Okay, you guys are
3: encyclopedias. This is amazing. <laughs> so yeah. You all really
0: should check out the graph on the NPR.org. But NPR. I also love like segment. how different
3: we all are, because like I hate
0: graphs. <laughs> that graph is so amazing, graphs. Sam. I will
2: show you this graph
0: okay. after we get you, out of here.
4: You got the feels. We got the charts. It's all good. It works. <laughs>
2: Which is one more thing. Um, In one of those battlegrounds we've been talking about, New Hampshire, something interesting happened this week in a debate between Senator Kelly Ayotte. She's a Republican and her Democratic challenger, Governor Maggie Hassan. Sam, you want to talk about this? Yeah, I've
3: been obsessed with this moment. It kind of says a lot about the race. Um, During this debate, uh, both candidates were asked if Trump or Clinton can be role models. And so Ayotte said this. Donald Trump, would you point to him as a role model?
1: Uh, I I think that uh, certainly uh, there are many role models that we have, and uh, I I believe he can serve as president, and so absolutely
5: I would do that. If you believe he can serve as president, why won't you endorse him?
1: Because I've had some disagreements with him. And I've been quite clear about those disagreements.
3: So if you could hear the awkward in her response, it only got worse later. This response from her came in the same week that Donald Trump would not stop talking about the weight of a former Miss Universe contestant. Uh,
2: Told people online in a tweet to look up sex tape.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, this was kind of the wrong week to say that Trump was a role model in some people's eyes. She then backed it up and said, quote, I misspoke tonight while I would hope all of our children would aspire to be president. Neither Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton have set a good example, and I wouldn't hold up either of them as role models for my kids. From a Republican, the fact that Republicans are getting dinged for calling the guy at the top of their ticket a role model says a lot about this race, and I've been obsessed with it.
4: Well, let's let's just back up for a second. What did we say about where – New Hampshire is leaning and in the presidential race. It has now moved more toward Hillary Clinton's yes. camp. So if you're a senator in one of these states, and this isn't just about this past week, this has been the entire campaign. She's been at loggerheads with him for I months. will just say Ayat and Hassan have had problems in how to figure out how to talk about these candidates. Yes. Hassan, you know, flubbed when she couldn't answer whether or not she thought Hillary Clinton was trustworthy and honest. (laughs) And then she kind of changed her position on that and said, yes, of course, I do trust her and I really messed that one up. So both of them aren't sure how the presidential race is going to play in their state. And when you have a state that's now tipping in the direction of Hillary Clinton, even slightly, it makes it all the more difficult for Kelly Ayotte to figure out how to talk about him because she also can't alienate Donald Trump supporters who are in that state who will make up a significant portion of the people who vote for her. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about this is just the delicate balance that... Republicans who are running for Congress or for Senate have with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. But I do think that voters in some states are able to differentiate. I mean, if we look at Florida, I saw some polling this week specifically zeroing in on the very large Puerto Rican population in the central part of the state. And they found that Hillary Clinton has a very huge lead among Puerto Ricans at the presidential rate level. But then they saw that for the Senate race, it's a very competitive race. So in theory, it's either that, you know, Donald Trump Trump is repelling, you could say, conservative Puerto Ricans, maybe, or that there are some liberal Puerto Ricans who are able to differentiate and say, like, I'm OK with Marco Rubio for this you know, Senate seat. This, and and this... the ability to differentiate, I find so interesting, given the sort of vitriol at the top of the ticket yeah. we're hearing from the candidates.
4: The ticket splitting and whether or not enough Republicans vote for the person at the bottom of the ticket or at least at a second or third line on that ticket. Versus the number who split to vote for Hillary Clinton or vote for Gary Johnson or someone else or don't vote, that ticket splitting, that is going to be determinative uh, as to whether or not Republicans can hold on to the Senate or Democrats pick it up.
2: Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk about Bill Clinton, good surrogate or bad surrogate. Uh, Yeah. And uh, Saturday Night Live.
1: Support for NPR Politics and the following message come from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, making getting a mortgage more convenient than ever before. Get approved for a mortgage online in minutes using your phone or tablet and ditch the stacks of financial documents by using cutting-edge technology. You can also safely share bank statements and pay stubs with the touch of a button. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com nprpolitics. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. And number 3030.
2: All right, we're back. Let's take a listen to something former President Bill Clinton said a couple of days ago at a rally in Flint, Michigan. He was there campaigning for his wife, and he was talking about the crowning achievement of the Obama administration.
5: People that are getting killed in this deal are small business people and individuals who make just a little too much to get any of these subsidies. Why? Because they're not organized. They don't have any bargaining power with insurance companies and they're getting whacked. So you've got this crazy system where all of a sudden 25 million more people have health care. And then the people are out there busting it sometimes 60 hours a week, wind up with their premiums doubled and their coverage cut in half. It's the
4: craziest thing in the world. I mean, the fact is. You know, that's not what you're supposed to say when you're talking about this law and you're supporting it right I mean it's not to say that what he said is incorrect because actually. all those,
2: a lot of those things really are happening and, because, I mean like, even
4: Democrats accept that Obamacare needs a lot of fixes because frankly that crown in the that crown jewel in the crown you know's got a little schmutz on it right I mean it's like it <laughs> oh needs it needs uh, needs some polishing but good luck trying to get Congress to get on board with making any kinds of fixes. And we've been talking about the debates. You haven't had a serious substantive policy debate on how to fix Obamacare because that's not something that the Republican Party is at all interested in doing.
2: So the question with this is, was Bill Clinton actually right? So we're going to phone a friend. Uh, Scott Horsley, White House correspondent,
4: uh, An all around fact checker, An all around
2: fact checker <laughs> for the NPR Politics Pod Squad. Uh, hey, Scott.
5: Hey, Pam. Good to be with you.
2: Good to be. Where are you, Scott?
5: I am at the White House Kitchen Garden, where they're just standing Ooh. by for the last harvest of the Obama administration.
2: Sounds fancy.
5: <laughs> so not the Rose Garden, though. Not the Sounds Rose Garden. A I don't the I don't vegetable think you can and harvest garden.
2: Is the kale overgrown?
5: oh no this garden is the most beautifully well-tended spot in all of washington
2: okay nothing
5: is overgrown but it looks a whole lot better than my backyard garden i'll tell you that
2: (laughs) okay so now down to the important things um obamacare how is it doing is it a crazy system
5: well it is a crazy system in the same way that the u.s healthcare system overall is a crazy patchwork and remember that was because of the political reality in 2009 and 2010 where uh, as obama said uh, they didn't want to start from scratch they were building on the existing very inefficient very fragmented healthcare system that we have in this country
0: bill bill in- said that it was hurting small businesses right that this system has a lot of pitfalls hillary clinton also acknowledged that there are some improvements she wants to bring about but i guess i just would like to understand Like, uh, is the sense that the system isn't working, is that true?
3: And what are the major problems with Obamacare right now?
5: Okay, you have to remember that there's a whole lot of different pieces to Obamacare, and the vast majority of Americans still get their health insurance either through their employer or through some government program like Medicare. The piece of Obamacare that I think the former president was talking about was the health care exchanges which were set up for people who have to buy insurance on the individual market. And that's a a small percentage of Americans, but it's a significant percentage, and that's where a lot of the focus has been. The challenge uh, on the individual market has been that so far Obamacare has not been able to attract as many customers, especially young and healthy and low-cost customers, as they would have hoped. Uh, And as a result, the pool of people who are buying health insurance on the government-run exchanges tend to be a little bit sicker and a little bit costlier than some insurance companies had hoped as a result some insurance companies have been losing money and pulling out of that market and as a result of that uh, some people who are shopping for health insurance on those exchanges are finding that they don't have a whole lot of insurance companies to choose from now this is not a disastrous situation you still have a majority of people on the exchanges who will have three or more insurance companies to choose from but it's not optimum. I mean, yeah. Scott,
0: he basically said that people are getting killed in this deal. Is that factually true? In a nutshell, that well, people no, are they're getting not being killed? killed. I mean, no. I mean, metaphorically, that people are getting killed in this deal.
5: There, there are, there are certainly a, a, a fraction of Americans who are finding that insurance that they would try to purchase through the government-run exchanges is more expensive than they would like, and possibly more expensive than the insurance that they used to buy on the individual market for themselves before Obamacare came in. Now, one of the reasons it, would, it might be more expensive is that it is now guaranteed, that is, they can't, they can't, the insurance companies can't take it away from you if you get sick, which they used to be able to do. Uh, another reason it might be more expensive is that now that uh, the insurance companies have to cover everyone who, who signs up, Uh, They can only uh, discriminate on prices uh, within a fairly narrow band. The the most expensive customer can only pay three times as much as the least expensive customer. So if you're a very healthy person with a good income, you might find yourself now subsidizing someone who is sicker and poorer than you. The the losers in Obamacare are the wealthy and the healthy. And the winners are the poor and the less healthy the the losers in obamacare are the winners in the game of life
2: (laughs) scott thank you for joining us we appreciate it um thank you for being our phone a friend today
5: great and i look forward to now harvesting the uh the produce here in the white house kitchen garden
2: (laughs) bye bye Bye. eat healthy (laughs) thank you for those words of wisdom
3: (laughs) that was really helpful i learned something
2: yeah me too um Can we talk about Saturday Night Live just really quickly? We need to. So
3: I wrote about it. I watched it and wrote a little, not quite a review, but an an analysis. Um, And I have some thoughts.
2: Okay, I want to get to your thoughts, but since I know that your thoughts are not happy (laughs) thoughts, (laughs) let's go to the tape first. Uh, So the cold open is what it's called. Let's hear a little bit.
5: Now let's bring up the candidates. First, she's been battling pneumonia, and we hope she's feeling better tonight. It's Secretary Hillary Clinton.
2: (coughs) So she comes out, she's got a cane, she's, she's acting Is she coughing? She's oh, coughing. Yeah, gotcha. okay. And then she does a somersault and jumps up and she's alive. It's very <laughs> wheelie wonka.
1: I'm better than ever, let's do this.
3: So they did uh, kind of poke fun at Hillary Clinton for a new catchphrase she tried to coin during the first debate.
1: Lester, my, my opponent's tax plan benefits the top 1% so much. It's not just trickle-down economics, it's... I don't know. I guess if I had to call it something off the top of the old dome with no prep whatsoever, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'd call it trumped-up, trickle-down economics.
5: <laughs> Still doesn't work. It's <laughs> very catchy, Secretary. You, you just came up with that just now.
1: I did, right off the stiff red cuff.
5: <laughs> hey, jazz man. I've got a very presidential answer for this.
2: And so Alec Baldwin is now playing Trump.
5: He did uh, very Saturday well at, that. at Our jobs are fleeing this country. They're going to Mexico. They're going to China.
4: I mean, Alec Baldwin is pretty spot on. I mean, he's a little more gravelly yes. than Trump's voice. I like the wrong,
3: the wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah. That was good. That
4: was him. good. Oh, yeah,
1: let's hear that part. I mean, this man is clearly unfit to be commander in chief. Wrong. He that was is good. a bully. Yeah. Shut up. He started the birther movement. You did. He says climate change is a hoax invented by China.
5: It's pronounced China.
1: <laughs> yeah. He hasn't released his tax returns, which means he's either not that rich. Wrong. Not that charitable. Wrong. Or he's never paid taxes in his life. Warmer. <laughs> Okay, Sam.
3: I don't want to put a total damper on all of it. but so, I think what
2: you have to say is important. Though.
3: Yes. So I, like many others, I think, across the country, was really ready for SNL to come back because it seemed like this has been the summer of our discontent. You know, we've had to deal with the resurgence of birtherism, and then there were deplorables and tax returns and emails and affairs and videos and Ryan Lochte and just, like, we wanted a good laugh. here. Because he gets on my nerves. Anyways, I wanted SNL to return and just really be as strong as it was like in the 08 election when Tina Fey was Sarah Palin, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And what I know, I found myself thinking the entire episode, none of what they could do in this debate skit is as riveting as the actual debate. So on the one hand, we've got this election that has become crazier than anyone could have thought. How do you top it comedically? That was my first takeaway. Second takeaway is for lots of Americans, this election over the course of the last few months especially has become particularly unfunny. Yeah. People have stopped laughing. They are mad. They are angry. Scared, we're, argu- also. scared and we're And we're arguing over some issues that are really not funny at all in this election. Class, race, gender. Like it's tough stuff. And so it makes the job of folks at SNL even harder not to diminish the comedic genius of folks like Alec Baldwin and Kate McKinnon who actually played not just Hillary Clinton but Trump campaign manager Kellyanne Conway in the following skit. Um, I think they're doing their jobs well but this election makes it particularly difficult to do it successfully. I think
4: it's hard for comedians also because there have been comedians who've kind of gone on soapboxes about this election that also didn't work.
3: Yes yeah so like it's just tough like when everyone is so mad it makes the job even harder. And when the election itself is so crazy, how do you top it?
2: Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so we will be right back with Listener Mail and Can't Let It Go.
3: We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics and convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower healthcare costs. Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork. What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com.
4: Hey,
0: Sarah here again. After this episode, if you're looking for some great new podcasts to check out, NPR's newest show, The Big Listen, has you covered. Host Lauren Ober introduces you to podcasts you might have never heard of and gives you the inside scoop on shows you already love. Find The Big Listen on the NPR One app and npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, back
4: to the show.
2: All right. We are back. Time for a few of your questions. We will answer more of them in our weekly listener mail episode, which will be out tomorrow. We usually put that out Monday morning, but this Monday you'll have our debate recap to listen to. So look for that listener mail episode in your feed for the weekend. Also, thanks to those of you who wrote us after we talked about civic education in last week's episode. A lot of you wrote to say, hey, wait, we do teach civics in my college or my school. And a lot of you wrote to say that you wish there was more emphasis on civics where you are. And here's one we got from Scott who wrote to us. He writes... As a teacher in Saratoga Springs in New York, I make it a point to teach civics to my eighth graders as part of their social studies education. We cover the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the election process, and so much more. I've played clips of the podcast in class and encourage my students to subscribe because...
4: Yeah! Awesome.
2: I think you cover politics in a way that is relatable to a wide range of generations. Not only is the need for civics education great, as Mara pointed out, Mara Lyason, but it can also be a fantastic way to spark genuine interest in young people for their education in a way that has real-life application. Cool. Well, thank you, Scott. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So I have been talking to more young people about how they feel about the election. Also, just to follow up on the letters that we received. I got some tweets as well from teachers saying, hey, you know what? I teach civics. And it's like, yes, but there are lots of schools that don't do it. And I think I found some students over the course of this campaign, even if they have been taught civics or government, it still doesn't resonate for them. And that's a problem that, that has to be addressed. But um, I did a story this week all about how a political scientist are having to rework their coursework to teach Trump because he has changed all the rules of American politics this year, pretty much. And I talked with a political theorist at the University of Nebraska, Kearney. Her name is Lorna Bracewell. She's a podcast fan as well. Hi, Mm -hmm. Lorna. And she said so many of her young students come to class, not just with more questions about the election, but also kind of jaded, really jaded even on the idea of democracy.
2: I have students coming into my classroom with a surging antipathy for democracy they are frustrated they find it to be a ridiculous way to govern a society and they are ready to dismiss it out of hand and start having a wow. conversation about alternatives
3: people are over um, democracy
4: so that's a very different baseline that we're starting with i will say be careful what you wish for because you know if you have if you want to decide that you want to change Democracy, there's a reason why it was set up the way it was. I mean, there were founding fathers who were, you know, who saw the potential problems with a monarchy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, lots of presidents have lamented the fact that we have a divided system. Purposefully divided system, so that no one branch of power can get too much control and could run anything yeah. or dictate in a way that would give too much power to one side or the other. So you know, be careful.
3: And that's the challenge for folks like Bracewell, who are who is teaching a group of young people that feel particularly negative about lots of things in our politics right now and she said usually when she began to teach her theory class she would start with readings that were critical of the idea of democracy because most American students come into class very up and up on the idea democracy is good and that's it she said now because of their new emotions she has switched the whole course schedule around and starts with readings that basically pump up the idea that democracy is good Mm. so thank you Dr. Bracell for, for fighting the good fight
2: and now we go to a question from Joy in Chicago who wrote, Hello, beautiful people. I like that she thinks we're all beautiful. I She's mean right. radio. She's <laughs> right. Yeah. Say she up, Yeah, she probably doesn't know. Uh, she writes Faces for radio. Exactly. She writes Speak for yourself. <laughs> I knew he was gonna say that. I knew he was gonna say that. <laughs> Hi, beautiful people. <laughs> Help me understand why, in all caps, we do the town hall style debate. It's horrible and awkward and totally cringeworthy watching the candidates perch on bar stools or walk around chatting with members of the audience. When did this become a thing? And then she goes on. I have a hunch that Clinton will struggle with this format because she is often criticized as stiff. But on the other hand, maybe Trump will struggle without a podium to strangle. Thanks, Joy from Chi-Town.
4: Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, if she's already set up the fact that maybe Clinton will struggle, maybe Trump will, you know, hey, That's already given us something to to see a difference between these candidates. So maybe gives the town hall style debate a little bit of worth. I mean, I've already said I kind of like this format because it does test their personalities, their skill, their
3: relatability. Uh, And I want to see that stuff. Here's my thing with the town halls, and it creeps me out. We've talked about this before. Seeing people on bar stools always makes me nervous. I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to fall off.
4: Well, you know what? That's on them whoa! i don't
2: want to
3: see them fall
2: I am not a fan of the bar stool like really not a fan yeah because what do you want, like
4: a director's chair
2: I no I am a short girl who sometimes oh. wears high heels and like then you like you wobble and like it's very hard it could be awkward and just to answer the question 1992 was the year of the town hall the televised town hall and I would just recommend um there's a podcast uh, hosted by John Dickerson uh, he's also the host of of CBS's Face the Nation. And he did an episode all about the 1992. It's the Whistle Stop podcast. And he did an episode all about the 1992 town hall meeting with George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, where Bill Clinton did a much better job of, you know, like feeling people's pain at the town hall meeting. And it was seen as as a, a strong victory for him in, in that debate.
4: And it happened to take place in the hometown of Tim Kaine, Richmond, Virginia. Hmm.
2: Okay, now it's time for Can't Let It Go. This is how we end the show each week talking about something we cannot let go of, politics or otherwise. Sam.
3: Yeah, so I have a story that I first saw in a tweet sent by Lizzie O'Leary of Marketplace Weekend, who is also a podcast fan. Thanks for listening, Lizzie. She tweeted this amazing story from Jezebel. It is called, The team of men behind Rachel Broussin, the fake woman whose Trump-fueled breakup went viral. Here's the story.
2: This looks like a very. It's a meaty, meaty long read. It looks like a novel. You'll
3: need some time for it, but here's the basic premise a site called Review Weekly, which exists just to make up fake writer profiles, to have those fake writers get their posts posted in other websites to drive traffic back. To Review Weekly, they created a fake woman named Rachel Brewson, uh, who is a giant liberal, self-described, but fell in love with a man named Todd, a Republican who ended up supporting Trump. So there were a series of essays detailing their torrid love affair that went kind of viral. Ultimately, Nightline said, come on our show and talk about your weird relationship. So this website had to send two actors to go on Nightline. Or they could
2: have stopped lying.
3: Well, they didn't stop lying until they got found out. But they got found out and they told their story to Jezebel because they had like two different photos of this woman on her posts. It was that blatant. uh... So they end up being asked by Jezebel, why did you do it? What's the deal? And they said, well, the whole premise of our website is to get as many clicks as possible. Uh, And we realized that this year what gets all the clicks is Donald Trump. It's just so sad. And so like, besides being a crazy, crazy story, it just kind of underscores for me the strangely parasitic relationship and coexistence between Donald Trump and the media this entire election season. I feel like I've heard so many people bemoan, you know, how this is offensive or disgusting if Trump did this, Trump did that. But everybody in every newsroom and every media place across the country knows that Trump will get you the clicks
0: but it also shows how much people are just craving these feel-good stories because it was a story of really like a a love story but here's the thing it started out
3: as a love affair but (laughs) the fake story where it all ended they got in an ugly fight at a party then when they went on nightline these two actors the female actor said to the male actor you smell like booze uh he responded, you smell like patchouli. This whole thing is just absurd. Wow. So
0: did Nightline air this segment they and aired it knowing that...
3: Realize realized later it was totally fake. They've since pulled the video after the internet was like, just so you know, this is not true. Oh, oh my gosh. It was crazy. Wow. Anyway, I'm let right. it go.
0: Yeah. Asma. Awesome. Well, my can't let it go also deals with a television video, a television <laughs> video segment. So there is- um, an O'Reilly Factor correspondent uh, by the name of Jesse Waters. He does these man on the street segments. Oh, it is. And earlier this week, he <laughs> yeah, published, <that. laughs> I guess you all know what I'm talking oh, about. Yeah. Um, so he published a Chinatown edition earlier this week. And for those folks who aren't familiar with it, I think we have a little bit of tape. Why don't we take a listen?
3: You can tell it's offensive right there. That's the music to Kung Fu Fighting.
1: Am I supposed oh. to bow to say hello?
0: Le-ho.
1: Le-ho. Le-ho. <laughs> I like these watches are they hot Ooh. who are you gonna vote for Clinton wife. Clinton's wife has a name what is it
3: uh, oh man <laughs> I <I'd> forget it
5: <laughs> is it the
3: year of the dragon come on
0: so he goes around Chinatown interviewing people and it you know, he sort of preyed upon people who don't seem to have a really good grasp of the English language. um, Folks who may not be really immersed in the election cycle. You know, as you heard there, Clinton's wife has a name. And I think what to me was so strange about this entire video is that, you know, we all on the campaign trail meet voters of different walks of life, but we don't prey on people like that in that way. So, you know, just to be clear, um, Jesse Waters, he does these man on the street interviews in different places. And yesterday after this video got some pushback, he wrote on Twitter that, quote, as a political humorist, the Chinatown segment was intended to be a light piece, as all Waters World segments are. He also wrote uh, in another tweet that it was meant to be tongue in cheek, and he regrets if anyone found it offensive.
4: And I think that that kind of humor—I mean, I know he's supposed to be political humorist—but just because somebody says something's funny doesn't mean it's not offensive.
0: And that just segues really quick to the one last point on this I wanted to talk about, which is that there's new polling data out this week from the National Asian American Survey. You know, it's really hard to get good polling data on Asian Americans, but they went out and interviewed all these different ethnic groups—so Chinese, Indian, Korean, Japanese—to have this pretty comprehensive survey. And long story short, they found that among Asian-Americans, the Republican Party has a 58 percent unfavorable view, an unfavorable opinion. And to me, that just is mind boggling because I know I've said this so many times before to you all,
4: but it's a complete reversal. And Asian-Americans are also the fastest growing immigrant group in the country, even faster than Latinos. And Latinos get all this attention because they matter in so many battleground states. Asian-Americans matter pretty heavily, actually, in northern Virginia and has been one reason why Virginia's leaned more toward Democrats. So, Tamara, what can you
3: not let go this week? Nevada. Nevada?
2: Nevada. Okay. We've (laughs) been through
4: this, Sam. We always go through this. And you have gotten... You got right
3: on this. I know, but only (laughs) with
4: editor help. I mean, I I agree with you. I wasn't there, but I learned Uh, and was informed. And when the facts told me what it was supposed to sound like, I changed, Tam. Yes,
2: thank you. I have been like quite the Nevada scold of this podcast.
3: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'll admit it. Um, So yesterday in Nevada... Uh Uh, In Reno, Nevada, Donald Trump was at a rally, and um, he said
4: this.
5: Heroin overdoses are surging and meth overdoses in Nevada.
3: Nevada. Ooh. You know what I said?
5: You know what I said? I said, when I came out here, I said, nobody says it the other way. It has to be Nevada. It has to be. (laughs) And if you don't say it correctly... And it didn't happen to me, but it happened to a friend of mine. He was killed.
2: So there you go. Oh. So Sarah
0: was there, right? Yeah, I mean, so, do we know how this was received in the crowd? Yeah, so our
2: colleague Sarah McCammon was there at the rally. And afterward, she interviewed some people about it. And um, we uh, have tape from her interviews with Alan Weston and Sandra Anderson. My roommate in
3: college, correct me, say saying that's wrong, I guess
1: about Trump's pronunciation? What do you think of Trump's pronunciation?
3: (laughs) Fine. He's from New York. gotta give him a break. The
1: state you live in, how do you pronounce it? Nevada. But I laughed when Trump said Nevada. Hey, we all have a sense of humor.
2: So my thought listening to that was, donald trump could shoot someone in the middle of fifth avenue or he could mispronounce the state of nevada in the middle of nevada and not lose any votes
3: <laughs> is nevada a sp is nevada a spanish word
2: well Ooh. well yeah, see yeah. here's the problem with america we,
3: wow. <laughs> well, please tam but here's know. the thing so like there, there are we lots of we everything so like in, in los angeles my biggest pet peeve was how everyone called the neighborhood los felis Yeah, (laughs) it should be Los Feliz if you're speaking Spanish, but they anglicize these Spanish names.
4: Quick look up here: Nevada. Nevada is really the it comes from the Spanish Nevada, Mm. meaning snow covered, after
3: the Sierra Nevada. Nevada. (laughs) So then, if you say Nevada while speaking Spanish, can you pronounce it Nevada? I I would I would assume that if you're speaking
4: Spanish to say that something is snow covered, you'd say Nevada.
2: Yeah, and how do you say it in
4: Italian? Snow covered? No, uh, Nevada. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's Italian. <laughs> Everything Italian is always like much softer sounding. So Nevada. it would be it would be Nevada. Okay. You know, you'd have somebody Nevada. saying Nevada. You wouldn't. Mm. They'd have a very hard time saying. They went along with ah. their a. You know what though?
3: As a Texan, I don't want people calling my state Tejas. Exactly. I like Texas. There you go.
2: See, mm. problem solved.
3: Probably not. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, Dominica, What can't you let go of?
4: Uh, I can't let go of trying to look up what snow covered means in Italian. It means it's <laughs> coperta di neve. That sounds nice. It's just covered with snow. Okay. Um, <laughs>
2: very literal. Okay, Domenico, very, what can you literal. not let go of?
4: Um, what I can't let go of is, I think, the 90s because of Again. this campaign. But uh, I'm not sure this was actually the 90s. I think it was in 2000 or 2001 when uh, Slice, you know, the the, the the soft drink. The diabetes-causing soda. <laughs> I actually don't remember Slice. It They're was like Sli- a poor it's man's like, crush. Yeah, yeah, so slice okay. sometimes is orange soda. I some, thought it was they, lemon lime. They also have, they had orange though. They, they orange ha- like yeah, it, orange was like it. Is, uh, is it still around? It was meant to like compete with Sunkissed, remember? Oh, yeah, that? yeah, yeah, I remember um, Sunkist. And Slice, they went and did a Kind of, they they went and did a commercial in Richmond, where Virginia, they, Richmond, Virginia, and they went around and they met a whole bunch of different people. There was like one guy who was the Slice Man, the Slice Man coming. You kids like slice? Yeah, yeah, Dad. And they have this kind of rap theme, uh, the beat, was you nice. know, video. And they go around meeting a bunch of different people. One of the people that they meet is the mayor. Slice man, I'd like to present you with this key
3: to our great city. And I'd (laughs) like to present you with a slice of it. You shouldn't have. Oh, yes, I should. Get a slice of the city. You shouldn't have. Uh, And that mayor is? That
4: mayor was Tim Kaine. And he had kind of an interesting haircut back then. Uh, And he's like dangling the key, real tight shot. He says, slice man, I'd like to present you with this key to the city. So, you know, he's he was trying in 2001 Style Magazine had this Best of Richmond edition and voters named Kane as having the quote best sense of humor in a public official. So there you go. There you go. Yeah. You really need to work on your slice. Get a slice of the city. It's a really good beat. Like All right, so much of freestyle to this. Let's
2: go out on that beat everyone. I think
4: you're you're freestyling to a right very now. bad rapper. No. <laughs>
2: All right, that is a wrap on this week.
3: Oh, <laughs> oh boy. I love
2: it.
4: Scratch that one. Please clap, bro. Wicca, wet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, w- I didn't tell you guys oh, about, wow. I was in Florida in
2: the house. <laughs> and I went to a local brewery and they had a beer called Please Clap. <gasps> really?
4: Oh. Oh. Or is it, when you, it's Please Clap, it's more like... like. Oh, it's
2: a slow clap. Oh, yeah. A golf
3: clap. Or yeah. Like, yeah.
2: All right, well, mm. Please Clap. As we said, our usual episode of Listener Mail will be up tomorrow, so it won't be called the Monday Mailbag. And on Monday morning, we'll have an episode with a recap and analysis following Sunday night's debate. Until then, you know the drill. We're on the radio and also the NPR One app and at NPR.org. Email us at NPRpolitics at NPR.org. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign.
3: I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter.
0: I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign.
3: And I'm Domenico Montanaro,
4: political editor.
2: And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.